Yeah, yeah. Episode three. Guns, golf, and governments. It's your boy, Mike Pels, a.k.a. The Frantic Chef. And uh, episode three. Breaking in the Olympics. Let's speak on it. Uh, yeah. I'm going to just say that... Well, let's start back in in the history of my connection to breaking and uh, how I came about to be involved. So, back in the early 80s in Danbury, Connecticut, there was a crew called Century 3. Uh, early to mid 80s. It's been argued that they were kind of the first crew when breaking made its rounds out of New York into the surrounding area, tri-state area. Uh, at the time, in Danbury, Connecticut, you could go to Brewster, New York, hop on a train 45 minutes, you're in Manhattan. So, some people say that Century 3 was not the first crew. Uh, others argue that it was the first crew in Connecticut, but, you know, that's kind of irrelevant. I will say, though, that at that time, my older brother was uh, a B-boy in the crew called Century 3. And, uh, of course, just like any other big brother, little brother scenario, I wanted to be just like him. And uh, we used to have, we used to live on Cross Street in Danbury, Connecticut. And we used to have uh, a little thing that we would do called Friday Night Lights where my driveway was pretty flat at the bottom and we had this big light over the garage and we would, every Friday everybody would get together and we would do our thing uh, there in the driveway and you know, it'd be me, my older brother um, my best friend 3D who's one of the most phenomenal funk style dancers that you could ever see and then you know another handful of folks um, people from around the neighborhood whatever and we would do our thing at the time I was like probably 9-10 years old that um, that never left although I, I kind of weaned off it a little bit due to like you know my involvement with like drugs and alcohol and partying and um you know, that's a long story. See episode number one. You can learn all about it. Eventually, though, in my adulthood, uh, I reconnected with the dance on a more pure level. Uh, I actually, in 1997, joined the uh, Universal Zulu Nation and embedded myself into hip-hop culture and breaking wholeheartedly with the right intentions and direction in mind and the rest is history through that process I was able to meet many a many a talented dancer inspirational stories you name it it came out of my time in the breaking community and I still love every connection and every person. And uh, yeah. What happened was. I got to the point where. I felt as though. I personally. Wasn't benefiting the culture anymore. And it became. Far too difficult. To. Provide opportunities. And to give back to the community. And I had reached an age where. As much as I loved. The actual action. An art of getting down my body just couldn't handle it anymore and I, I didn't want to be that old washed up guy that was still trying I'd rather you know exit on a high note so you know I retired a few years back around age 40 41 in that time in that year uh, you know after that year I hung it up um 
but I've, I still love the art. Like I said, I still love all the connections and I've been paying attention. Thanks to the modern marvel of social media, I can continue to read and learn and educate myself on the direction and I can still see who's putting in the work and who's not and uh, a lot of the same names you know guys like Moy and Task uh, really accelerating breaking into what it is today and I'm grateful for it because even though I'm not myself involved in the action uh, I still you'll never take the b-boy out of me I will always be a b-boy 100% and the the things that were instilled in me through that process they're just never they're never gonna go away you just that you don't you don't just turn that kind of stuff off it doesn't happen that way okay so anyway that's kind of my background, quick and easy. Uh, let's let's get into this Olympic stuff. So the uh, the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires was kind of like a platform, I, I, I would imagine. And this is just speaking from my experience, uh, talking to folks who are were involved and. Um, just doing my due diligence of not trying to be somebody who opens their mouth and shit comes out. I really want to know what's going on so I can, you know, have the conversations as they arise. And uh, the Buenos Aires was kind of like the jump off. It was uh, it was the springboard. It was the test, and it it was amazing. There's a couple things that I didn't particularly appreciate. I think one of the things was the the snubbing of Connie Kingston, considering she was the only American dancer to travel to Japan and actually earn a spot and then wasn't allowed to go due to uh, some red tape with not anything on, on her end. It was, from what I understand, it was a roster issue. They had already maxed out the um, number of contestants that could go across the full extent of all of the categories and she just wasn't allowed to go sad as that may be doesn't change the fact that she's one of the one of the nasty ones out there still she's a super talented dancer and I would like to say now publicly that I really hope that the Olympic Committee allows her to compete she's aged out of the youth Olympics thing uh, she would have to be allowed to compete with the adults but I think she earned that right and uh, I'll just put that out there right now before we go any further you know Connie Kingston should be on the team off the rip and if anybody's listening tell somebody task if you're listening uh, y'all need to work that out alright so in Paris in 2024 the uh, will be the I guess the icebreaker as breaking uh, being an Olympic sport be the, it'll be the first time that it happens and we're gonna see uh, how how it works the kids did a great job the organizing body did a great job as it pertains to Buenos Aires. Yes, the U.S. didn't have involvement from a athlete standpoint, but we did have a large presence in the judging and uh, DJing and organizational category. 
on a worldwide scale. And we should be proud of that. Breaking started here in the States. It's as much a folk art form as anything else out there. We should be proud that the art form has grown and expanded and constantly elevated and is now pretty much at the pinnacle of the, I guess you could say, the ultimate competition for physical activity. You don't get any bigger than the Olympics, really. And uh, we should all be proud of that. Anybody who had a hand in the evolution and continuing the movement through the downturn, uh, you should be proud of yourself. I'm proud of you. And I appreciate you. What I wanted to use this time for, though, is to talk about the art sport argument and how that pertains to keeping breaking's authenticity intact as an art form and not a sport. Um, it's very important to older guys like myself that what we nurtured and grew and exposed people to originally was not a sport. As athletic as the movement was, we didn't start considering the possibility of it being a sport until fairly recent. You're talking about, you know, 50-something years as far as b-boying is concerned. Uh, We're only, I would say, 10 years where this argument started to brew within the community. Some could argue and say that it was from the popularization and the implementation of what you would call power moves. Some might say that it was just a natural progression because of how physical the entire body of movement. Because, look, I don't care who you are. If you do equal amount of footwork as far as like time goes, like if you put time on a timer and you just did power move sets and then you put that same amount of time on a timer and you did top rocket footwork, I can guarantee you, you're going to be just as winded, whichever format you choose to engage in against that timer. And honest to God, it's all athletic and it's, it's all, every aspect of it is just as important, but I guess where I'm going with this, and I don't, I really don't want to run out of time on this subject because it's very important to me. I hold it very dear to my heart and the kids coming up and the people responsible deserve the time. So here's, here's my thoughts. The brass tacks of it, whether it's a sport or a dance, is that it's up to the athlete or performer, whatever you want to call them, it's, it's genuinely up to them whether or not we lose that artistic aspect. But it's also, that burden is also 
going to be on the shoulders of those involved with the organizational aspects. And what I mean by that is, are you going to roll over and not push for some type of form of education amidst all of your interviews and your articles? You have the power to, to, to say, to just say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Yes, we want to compete. Yes, we want recognition. But we also want to recognize where this came from and the artistic measures behind it. Because yes, the people that are active in the activity, the people who are actually partaking of the dance will always have a nod to the artistic element because let's face it, you go in the cipher and you just do straight power the entire time and you start repeating sets and then you go from the cipher to the prelims in a local event and people start seeing you doing the same sets and the same bullshit you were doing in the cipher in the actual battle itself that's, you're not going to get much love and you shouldn't so of course those people are going to understand but what about the people in the stands who didn't even realize that breaking had gotten to this level those people are going to see those movements and they're going to be in awe and they're going to be impressed but they're not going to know what the fuck they're looking at let's be real here people so you can do both you can be an athlete and an artist at the same time human beings are complex the world is complex the dance is complex you can do whatever the fuck you want but what respect really means more to you the respect of your peers and your elders who carried this genre and this art form up to this point or the Olympic Committee who is more leaning on the side of the athleticism aspects that's up to you that's up to the dancer that's up to the person putting in the work and I don't fault you either way I love you just the same but we've got to have some education in there somehow we have to make sure that in our communication to the general public that at every opportunity we are injecting the fact that it is still an art form it just happens to be the most physical of art forms existing today B-boys and B-girls do with their bodies is incredible. I, I strongly believe that if human beings at some point in our time walking this planet, if somebody figures out how to fly, it'll be a B-boy that does it. And let's face it, what's an air flare? You're literally, there is no contact to the ground whatsoever for, for that moment that you push over. You're flying. We're flying. What the upper echelon of talent is doing physically with their bodies is impeccable. 
and should be rewarded. And that's why I am pro-Olympics. But at the same time, make sure that you're paying homage to the 50 plus years that came before this. And make sure at every opportunity, like I said, you're educating. The beauty is always going to be in the details. There's no way around it. So we really need to do our our due diligence to have the absolute best judging and the absolute best music and the absolute best conditions so we can guarantee the absolute best outcome and through it all we need to never stop educating. The number one rule in breaking is that you're always a student. And always being a student also means always being a teacher because the minute you stop teaching what is there to learn chicken and the egg right what came first you can't always be a student if there's nothing left to learn or if there's nobody teaching you so if you want to keep the art within the culture the responsibility falls on the people involved in the activity as it's being projected onto the general public how we carry ourselves because there's going to be a small handful of the population of b-boys and b-girls that are spread across this wonderful planet we live on. It's only going to be a small handful that's going to be active and involved in this. The vast majority of us, well, I say us, but I'm retired, but you know what I mean. The vast majority of the people are going to be still in the local communities, still in the basement of coffee houses, still in the gazebos at your local park and in your dance studios battling for that $200 prize fund trying to make a name for themselves within the community and hoping that their skill level gets to an Olympic level so good luck to everyone out there I say good luck to the organizers from president to treasurer, I say good luck to the athlete representatives, I say good luck to the athletes themselves, I say good luck to the Olympic Committee, and I absolutely 100% look forward to seeing where this evolution takes our great art, and I appreciate everyone who has got it to this point thus far. I love you and thank you. Now, let's get into these three G subjects, baby. Guns, golf, and governments. Uh, So first off, on the guns subject, I said that we would be talking about buybacks and confiscations and my take on why I think it won't happen. Um, I think it's impossible. I think that it's impossible. If you're not involved in the Second Amendment or in the gun community, then it's it's not you're not capable of recognizing the reason why it's an impossibility, the reason why it's it just can't happen, it won't happen. Because you will never be able 
to wrap your head around the fact that the issue of the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, it's it's a no-go. It's a non-topic for people involved in the Second Amendment. Law-abiding, gun-owning citizens. Yes, there will be some folks who don't recognize the importance of a right like the Second Amendment. And those those will be the people that will willingly turn in their arms whether it's a buyback or a confiscation and you know what because they're law abiding citizens you can't knock them for that I never want to hear a pro second amendment individual talk down upon someone who may have purchased their firearm with the intent of protecting their family or what have you but not see the bigger picture and still abide by the laws that are put forward by US federal or local government ATF whoever uh you you can't look down on somebody for trying to do what they think is right. But the vast majority of Second Amendment individuals, people that are two-way all day like myself, they're not going to comply. It's a non-topic. In this day and age, all you need is some basic mechanical engineering knowledge the ability to operate basic tools and a 3D printer and you can pretty much create anything and let's not mention that in order to go through with like a confiscation or a buyback, you got to know who's got what. And that's going to require a registry. And I can tell you now, pro Second Amendment guys, that's where the buck's going to stop. That's the line in the sand. Because we have the freedom to keep and bear arms. And that is written in the Constitution as a right that shall not be infringed. And anyone, literally anyone, that raised their right hand and put their left hand on that Bible and swore to protect and uphold the Constitution is going to be responsible to do just that. You knew what you were getting into. You knew what that document said before you took that oath. And you decided to take it anyway. And the vast majority of Second Amendment individuals like myself are going to hold you to that. There's a lot of jibber-jabbering talks about civil war and this, that, and the third. Look, I'm... I'm not that guy that's going to go looking for a fight. Let me make that very clear. I'm not storming any capitals. I'm not... I don't mind admitting that I'm not going to be that guy that's on the front lines if it comes to that. But I will be on my own property and in my own house... And I will protect my home and my property and my family from anything that might come my way. And that includes 
anybody that may come sniffing around looking for anything that I might have as it pertains to firearms. You're not, it's not happening. You're not going to take it. I'll bury it. You will not know it exists. And that's, that's pretty much everyone who I talk to that is pro-Second Amendment. They model that exact thought process. We are going to figure out a way to make sure that that doesn't happen. And here's the cool part about that. Let's say that the government does get to a point where they can force a confiscation and the ATF gets crazy funding and hires all these new agents and sends these agents out in the local communities to take people's shit. And a lot of those people hide their shit or get rid of it and you don't know where it is and you can't find it and you can't lock them up for not having it because you would need some type of proof that they had it in the first place which is going to be impossible for you to prove in a court of law what ends up happening is later on down the road if tyranny were to poke its little head out of its little hole in the ground there's going to be a very large population of individuals that you will not know whether they have arms or not and in the art of war the element of surprise is the most important one so let's keep that in mind if you think they don't have it and they do and you come trying to bully you might find yourself on the shitty end of an equalizer that you had no idea existed so good luck with that and I think they know that I think they fuck with people and they scare people but at the same time they don't really got it in them okay so that's my take on the confiscation let's get to the golf subject everybody's favorite superhero Bryson DeChambeau ranked number one in the FedEx rankings right now one of only five people to win the NCAA and the US Amateur in the same year the man had chops before he ate a bunch of chops and put on weight now he's hitting it further than anybody ever thought that anyone would get to on tour. And he's literally trying to overpower some of these golf courses and you know what? He's number one in the FedEx Cup rankings. I mean, you don't get there without being successful with your play. And I am a fan of watching the process and I'm a fan of seeing him succeed when so many people told him that he was freaking crazy I mean I've heard stories that Tiger Woods calls him Rain Man and shit because he's always going at it from like a engineering and physics standpoint cranking the numbers people get pissed at him because he takes forever to read putts and you know the whole air density thing and all that shit yeah um now the question is is he proving the old timers wrong is accuracy still the most important thing well if you look at his standings in the FedEx Cup and you look at his driving statistics and his greens and regulation uh 
you know, he seems to be pretty accurate. He might miss a fairway here and there, but he's not missing it by much. But if you look at his fairway statistics, and this is really weird for me, when you look at his fairway statistics, he's kind of middle of the road, and he's also kind of in the middle of the road in scrambling. Now, you would think that if he was missing fairways, that his statistics in scrambling would be higher because he is achieving the end result of low numbers and successful, you know, wins and top tens. So why are his scrambling numbers down and fairway numbers down? Uh, I'm not a statistics guy, honestly. Mathematically, I couldn't tell you. You would think common sense, his scrambling numbers would be higher, but look, end end of the day, accuracy is always going to be important. If you miss a fairway a little bit to the right or the left, or if you fucking put on a shit ton of weight and you have the strength to power it out of the long grass and still achieve the results that you need to win, isn't that in itself kind of accuracy? I mean, if you've got green and regulations and you're hitting putts and you're winning tournaments and you're doing it from the rough... That almost takes a lot more skill than having your ball being nice and fluffy and clean in the middle of the fairway. And he's doing it. So it's kind of a conundrum here because he is proving the old-timers right that accuracy is the most important thing. But he's doing it from the rough. After he hits a 400-yard drive. So, you know, props to him for being able to uh, uh, approach golf in, in his own way. You know how I feel about golf if you know me and if you listen to um, this podcast, the other two episodes. Golf is an individual game. It's just you out there. So who gives anybody the right to talk shit about how you play the game? If you're within the rules of the game and your ball is producing the results that you need, as long as that club head is square at impact, who gives a fuck what you do before and after? Be a statesman of the game to the fans and the communities that host the events Grip it and fucking rip it all you want. And if you're a hundredth in the FedEx standings or if you're first in the FedEx standings, that's your fucking game. And nobody should be able to tell you how you should swing or not swing. If that was the case, Jim Furyk wouldn't have been as successful as he is. Or uh, Matthew Wolf wouldn't be as successful as he is. You know, everybody cracks on uh, Shigeki uh, because of his pace and his swing and his pause and all that. Come on, man. Golf is an individual sport. It's just you out there and play your game, baby. Do your thing. And just like anything else, if you're not having constant elevation, if you're not moving forward... If you're not moving the game forward and trying to change things and, and and evolve with the times, I don't know what to tell you. You're just stuck in the past, baby. Not me. I come over the top like a motherfucker and I still love to play and I hit good shots. People say my swing is ugly and you know what? Fuck you. I don't care. I like it. It's my game. That's all that matters. And last but not least, on our government's topic, I promised that we would talk about the 1619 Project. Holy fuck. Are you kidding me? 
listen, I'm not, a con- I have conservative views on some things. I have progressive views on other things. I, I feel like every state should take a swash of land, a big section of land, and throw up a shit ton of solar panels and uh, route that into the grid and see what the fuck happens. I'm all about it. Trust me. But let me just say that this 1619 shit, I can't get behind it, y'all. I cannot. So the 1619 project is basically saying that the founding of this country, the date should move from 1776 to 1619 because that was the arrival of slaves into the colonies and the start of the colonies in Virginia. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit, man. A lot of bullshit that goes along with that. Um, you know, this the person that wrote this 1619 worked for the um, worked for the New York Times. Uh, she's a scholar. Uh, she's into you know studying black culture and and black history and listen we've got a blemish on on the United States folks you're not going to change that you can't change history and yes I agree that slavery as bullshit as it was the United States as a country would not be what it is today without it okay people capitalized on all of that labor that came from the sweat and the whip and we need to acknowledge that absolutely 100% we need to acknowledge that but the country did not start without the process of rules and regulations It wasn't a country. It was just property. It was just land. So, a couple of little highlights, okay? First, the 1619 wants to teach you that the Revolutionary War uh, was caused by the, the... the threat of slavery ending. Now I want you guys to do your I want you guys to do the work. I, I know the information. I've read the information. But I want you to look at the date that slavery ended in Europe and Great Britain at that time. The British did not end slavery till after. So if the Revolutionary War was based, like the cause of it was because of the threat of ending slavery and that all these redneck racists wanted to keep their slaves and so that's why they fought and, you know, risk killing themselves. I mean, if that shit doesn't make any sense to me. Common sense would tell you that if you're... If you're looking at a, a human being as lesser than... Is it worth sending your sons and your brothers into war... And risking ending your bloodline and your name to protect something that at the time you thought of as less than? Now, no, I don't think so. That's just me. Okay? Uh, like I said, we need, 100%, we need to acknowledge the contributions of African Americans to the building of this country. 
And I'm not going to be that guy that says, yeah, but the Asians and the Hispanics too. Fuck all that. No. African-Americans, the slaves that came across the Atlantic, that was an atrocity beyond compare. And we would absolutely not be where we are today without them. And we do need to acknowledge that. But I'm not going to say that the country started in 1619, 1776. When those documents were were made up that organized and combined the states into united. That's were called the United States because somebody, a group of men, had the intestinal fortitude to say, hey... We can either fight each other or we can bond together and create a great experiment and try to keep everything as an individual unit made up of separate parts, just like a well-oiled machine. Somebody had that idea and that idea flowed through paperwork. And that is what created the United States from a governmental and organizational status. Not taking anything away from those horrible conditions that African Americans pushed through and flourished from they overcame I don't know a white boy on this planet that could go through what they went through and still continue to thrive we have made wonderful strides in trying to promote equality yes I am fully aware of the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm fully aware and understand the negative uh, first impressions that some ignorant people have against African-American folks in this day and age. I know that that exists, but some good shit has happened too. There is opportunity. Not everybody goes through the ringer who is brown in their skin tone. Some people go through their entire lives without an interaction with the police and go to college and succeed. It happens. And it would not happen had we not made some improvements, can we get better? Absolutely. But this ain't it, folks. This ain't how it works. Listen. Black Lives Matter is a nonprofit organization. In order to become a 501c3 and become a nonprofit organization, you have to list your administration you have to have a president you have to have a vice president you have to have a secretary you have to have a treasurer you have to list those names and those names have to be in the formal documentation for you to become a nonprofit 501c3 you are not a nonprofit unless you have that in order without it you are an idea Black Lives Matter and any other nonprofit organization became a nonprofit organization when the paperwork was submitted and approved. Your organizational documentation is what made you the entity that you are. This country was made the entity that it is when its documentation was drafted, approved, 
and signed on. And there is absolutely nothing that you can say that is going to make me think otherwise. Another thing that they teach in the 1619 Project is that the only reason why universal healthcare has not passed is because it would mean that because black America tends to be in the majority in low income that they would be taking part and using universal health care more than everybody else and so nobody will pass it that's a fucking stretch that's a stretch because you obviously if that's what you believe you obviously hasn't spent much time in the mountains or it in the deserts and in the plain states there's a lot of poor people everywhere of every skin color that could use universal health care yes unfortunately the African American community is the most represented race in the low income status I've, that's a that's a stretch to say that it's your fault that and, and the fault of racists in the government that universal health care hasn't passed. I've heard the arguments of why universal health care hasn't passed, and they're all fantastic arguments as to why universal health care has not passed. And none of them have anything to do with race, I can assure you. There's enough okay, so let's say this. I'll humor you. If it is the old white guys in government that is keeping universal health care from passing because they're racist, I'll give you that. But there's plenty other reasons why. And there is enough reasons why without that to not pass it. You want to say that I'm against universal health care? Yeah, I'm not. I'm only speaking from the models that have been submitted thus far. Nobody has came through with a fantastic idea for universal health care as of yet. They've all been complete shit. And if you're up on your knowledge, you can read the pros and cons. And there's a lot of cons out there. I think it can be done. I'd like to see it done. But I'd like to see it done in a, the right way. I'd like to see it done in a way that it, it's not going to cost the American taxpayer a ridiculous amount of money. We can talk about that. That's a completely different podcast. And maybe... Maybe I'll write that one up, but right now, I'm not going to get into it with you. Just know that I'm all for uh, universal health care. I think, I think we can do it, and I think it can be done in a way that is beneficial for everybody involved. But I don't think it hasn't passed because of race. Racist white people in government are not keeping the rest of the American people away from being able to take part in health care because of black people. I, it's just, I'm sorry. It's not happening. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here. You know, the person uh, that wrote this 1619 stuff, she says that her grandmother was a slave and a sharecropper. And now she's a college-educated 
super intelligent woman. I don't knock her for it. You know, the angles that she's coming from, the essays that she's read that has brought her to these conclusions to start this project through the New York Times. You, you, you are not a, you're not a dumbass. Somebody that does this is not a dumbass. They're very intelligent. Uh, all I'm saying is, look, if your grandmother was a sharecropper and a slave, even if your great-grandmother was a share, sharecropper and a slave, the fact that you are now a college-educated individual who is highly intelligent and writing for the New York Times and making a living doing what you love to do in a free state and you have been able to do things your grandmother could only dream of shows that there has been improvement and as much as we should acknowledge what African Americans contributed to the building and the growth of this country and as much as we should acknowledge the fact that they are portrayed in a negative light on a day-to-day basis through the eyes of racism we should acknowledge all of that but in doing so we should not condemn how wonderful this country is on so many levels The United States is a great place. It really is. And you can see it and you can hear it simply by talking to someone who came here running from someplace else and made something of themselves. You can't ignore the stories of people coming to the United States with 20 bucks in their pocket, working their asses off, starting a business and putting their kids through school and making a success story of not only themselves, but an entire generation and an entire bloodline. It happens so much and it only happens here on the scale that it does and that should also be acknowledged 1619 project is being pushed in curriculums for public schools around the country right now I think it should be taught I think the children need to know all of the information included in the 1619 project as it pertains to slavery and the contributions of African Americans to the development of this great country. That should be taught. But this country started in 1776. And you'll never change my mind. Wow. Last night, I was full of piss and vinegar. (laughs) Uh... You know, full disclosure, I'm a pretty busy guy, so I'm recording these things every chance I get. I was on a drive last night and uh, had time to kill and decided to go ahead and make it happen. None of this is scripted. I get an idea of what it is I want to talk about, and then I just talk about it. So, if you made it through the full hour last night, you know, thoroughly appreciate it. I hope you took something from it. And if you did, let people know about it. Uh, I'm a very unorthodox person. My views are very detailed. And sometimes things can go a little long. But I generally try to keep it 45 minutes or under an hour. And I'll continue to do the same. We'll have an fourth episode coming up here real soon uh i think i'm gonna get into some more um social 
aspects with our beginning stories, opinions on relationships and things like that. I don't want to be too over governmental or, you know, one of the other three core subject matters that we will talk about every podcast. I'd like to have my opinion shared on some other aspects of life in general. But stay tuned and I appreciate you guys following along. And if you enjoy the talk, if you enjoy the take, give it a share. Tell somebody about it. If you got anything from it, or if you agree, or even if you disagree, because I'm not scared of the tough conversations. I'm not scared of the comment sections. You know, my heart doesn't pump Kool Aid. So, yeah, let people know. And again, I love each and every one of you. Thank you for making it through, and we'll catch you on the next one. 3G, baby, all day.